I want you to know um, it's such a joy to see you here. We have uh, been praying for you. And many of you now we know by name, we have been praying um, literally for months. And so we're eager to see you here and see what the Lord does. What does steadfastness mean? It's such a, it's such a massive concept in scripture. It means unyielding. It has the idea of being relentless, of being single-minded, resolute, unflinching, faithful. And it speaks of God and it speaks of us, that it is something that God is. It is something that we are to be. It's a monumental theme in scripture. There's three basic ways that really we would encapsulate how the concept of steadfastness is used. The first one is the certainty of God's faithfulness, his love. We read about this in Psalm 136. The second way it's used is the commending of the Christian to steadiness and, and stability and trust in the Lord. And then the third way we see it being used is the constancy of truth, that there's the, the doctrines of God, the doctrines of grace. They never change. They never waver, and they're bigger than we can possibly grasp, and so we don't change them. We have the certainty of God's faithfulness and the commending of the Christian and the constancy of truth. So those are really the three themes that we'll address during this conference. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. George Whitfield, the great 18th century American preacher, said, The church is to continue steadfast and immovable in the profession of their faith. Charles Spurgeon said, Beloved, be ye steadfast in the doctrines of the gospel. The Apostle Paul said, Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul says again, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, to the steadfastness of Christ. And John Calvin said, remain steadfast in his wholesome doctrine. I spoke to a Christian woman recently and she was talking about the state of the world today and she spoke with absolute terror she used words like frightening and distressing and alarming and scary. There was a tremble in her voice, genuine abject fear, her hands even trembling as she thought about all the things that are happening in our world today. Now, I happen to know the theological framework that she's coming from. Her theological framework is that God is a cozy, teddy bear-like God whose primary concern is to give us warm, tingly feelings about himself that he's a campfire, bring a tear to my eye, kind of a slushy, gushy, sentimental God who defines our relationship with him only in sentimental, emotional terms. Well, the problem is she was suffering from what much of Christianity suffers from, and that is an anemic, insipid, pale, weak view of God. And the results are catastrophic. It results in self-centered worship, worship that is focused around romanticism as opposed to biblical worship, which is centered around the fearful and humble approach toward a holy God who's purchased our redemption in blood, the blood of his son. It also has another catastrophic result in your life personally, and that is it results in volatility in our trust in the Lord. When hard times and trials come and rattle our cages, all of a sudden, it's a lot harder to grasp a campfire sentimental God when a campfire sentimental God lets my child get cancer or lets my wife die and when he lets things happen that we can't grasp. But worst of all, it results in what we might call a selective theology of God. A theology of God that's inevitably filtered through the question, what does this mean for me? I heard a popular teacher that every one of you would know his name. He wrote an article about the character of God, and I thought, great, he's finally come around. And so I started reading it. I was hopeful. And he began by highlighting the justice of God, and I was kind of excited. We're going to get some theology here. We haven't got theology from him in 20 years. Well, here's how he defined the justice of God. The justice of God is that if somebody has taken something from me, I'm going to get it back. What does that have to do with God? Nothing whatsoever. That's an anemic view of God, and it has a horrible impact on our lives. An anemic view of God hamstrings believers, and suddenly when something goes wrong, you're hanging on desperately to a pebble instead of understanding that God in Scripture is a rock. And so we become so little J.I. Packer said, if you disregard the study of God, you sentence yourself to stumble 
and blunder through this life blindfolded with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. So tonight, I think the best way for us to begin to be steadfast in our faith, I'd like to preach what I would call a theocentric message. Very simply, I want to focus our attention on the weightiness, the significance, the majesty, what scripture calls hundreds of times the glory of God. And look only at him. And to help us do that, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. This is a story that you're very familiar with. In the Pentateuch, first five books of our Old Testament, the glory of God is spoken of 23 times. 14 of them are in Exodus. Exodus could very easily be subtitled, God is glorious and God gets glory. Now the book of Exodus, as you know, is the record of God's call to Moses and his miraculous rescue of his people, Israel, from the enslavement to the Egyptians. And Exodus, I mean, it's like a blockbuster movie. It has some of the most spectacular miracles in the Bible, and it has the greatest illustration of redemption and rescue in the entire Old Testament, and that is the crossing of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea is referenced all over Scripture. It's in the book of Joshua, Nehemiah, Psalms, Acts, Hebrews. And it's lifted up as this amazing demonstration of God's grace and the liberation of his people. Now, just so we can be very clear, I've probably listened to 20 messages on Exodus 14 in my lifetime. And could I say very humbly, I haven't heard one yet that got it right. Because it's not a moral lesson about when your back is against the wall, God will come through. It's not what it's about. It's not a moral lesson that when you cry out to God, the the waters of life will part for you. That's not what it's about. It's not a moral lesson that when the Egyptians of your life are upon you, that was a sermon title I heard, God will make a way of escape. Why is it not about any of those things? Because this passage has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God and his might and his splendor and his power and his majesty. It's all about him. So I have one goal tonight, one hope, and that is that our view of the grandeur and the glory of God would go up. And if it does, we'll have greater understanding of who he is. And if that's the case, then we worship him with greater effectiveness. And if we worship him with greater effectiveness, guess what he gets? He gets more glory. This is an amazing, a stunning account of God's rescue of Israel, and it puts God's radiance on display. He gives an exhibition of his glory. I mean, Exodus 14 is the God show. It's an amazing account. And so very simply tonight, I want to show you five features of God's glory, five features of the glory of God. The first one is his perfect plan, his perfect plan. Now, we have to start a couple of verses earlier than chapter 14, Chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, gives us the escape plan. The escape plan for Israel. Chapter 13, verse 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So that's the escape plan. Now, we have in the verse uh, prior to that, we're told they had moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The actual locations of those two places, Succoth and Etham, they're a matter of some debate. But what we do know is that Israel was making a beeline out of Egypt. They weren't wandering around. They were going straight. Now, Exodus 38 tells us that there were 603,550 men. So with women and children, easily two to three million Israelites taking the quickest way out of Egypt. Now, the Egyptians were no slouches militarily. They had a powerful and well-organized military. They patrolled their own borders. They had a very sophisticated communication system. The Israelite movements would have been reported up the chain of command to Pharaoh's military advisors. Now, what was reported to Pharaoh? We find out in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pehaharath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, what did he just say? You remember, Israel is beelining out, and God says, stop, turn around, go camp by the sea, face the wrong way, and be completely trapped. 
Now, why would this catch Pharaoh's attention? Well, Israel turning around and camping at Pehaharath. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Pharaoh go, let Israel go from serving us? Now, why would this catch his attention? Well, let's back up a minute. God had just nailed Egypt and Pharaoh time and time and time again. I mean, he kept handing him a shellacking over and over again with the plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and flies, diseased livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then he capped it off with the death of the firstborn of every family and the firstborn of all the livestock of Egypt, and that included the firstborn of Pharaoh himself. Well, chapter 12, Pharaoh surrendered. He said, go, be gone, serve the Lord. Basically, he says, get out of my sight. But now, verse four says, this is God, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God has hardened Pharaoh's heart one last time. After being pulverized by God, how did he do it one more time? How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? This is important for us to understand. To the Egyptians, the gods and goddesses who controlled the world in their minds, they were unpredictable. They were changeable. They were erratic. They weren't consistent. They weren't considered omnipresent. They could manifest themselves in certain locations at certain times and then suddenly leave. Egyptian deities were considered to be gods who were not always present with their people. Sometimes they were there, sometimes they weren't. Now the God of Moses, who to Pharaoh would just be another in a long list of gods, had really demonstrated his power with these plagues, so much so that Pharaoh finally said, you can go. And the thought is, maybe your God will go with you and leave me alone finally. But now, all of a sudden, remember, Israel is, they're making a beeline, and now they're like a balloon. You ever blow up a balloon and let all the air out of it? And it just goes all over the place. All of his military guys are saying, they're wandering everywhere. They're like hitting rocks and cliffs and going off ditches. They're, they don't know what they're doing. They change directions, and now, good king, they have camped facing the wrong direction, and they've bottled themselves up against the Red Sea. Now, what would Pharaoh's conclusion be? How did God harden his heart? According to his theology, his conclusion would be, aha, their God has left them, and now they're helpless. So Pharaoh was going to throw all he had at them, and militarily, it was very important for him to do this immediately because in his mind, Israel seemed confused. While they're, they're encumbered by their, their wives and their children, their livestock, their possessions, now, what was the original reason that Israel was ultimately enslaved? Remember, they were living in Egypt peacefully. They grew in numbers, and a previous pharaoh had enslaved them. Why? So that they wouldn't join Egypt's enemies in the war against Egypt. Well, the current pharaoh didn't understand something. He didn't understand that Israel didn't need any other nation's help in the war against Egypt, and this was war, and God had declared it. What was God's perfect plan? It was to get glory over Pharaoh. Now, God had already gotten glory over Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, but now he's going to include the entire military of this man to humiliate his pride. So God's wisdom is amazing. He, he sets and he springs this perfect trap to lead Pharaoh down a path that would do something never done before to literally decimate the army of the most powerful military on earth. God features his glory with his perfect plan. He also features his glory with his powerful protection. His powerful protection. Look with me at verse six. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pehaharath in front of Baal-Zephon. Now, there's a note here about verse 6. It says, 
He made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Better translation, he made ready his chariot and took his people, his entourage with him. Later on in those four verses, there's a more specific word used for army. And this will become important later. It was his people, his entourage, his following that went with him. Now, the force that Pharaoh brought to pursue and attack Israel was comprehensive. He was bringing absolutely everything he had. Now, to us, a chariot isn't that big a deal. We just push a button now and we can blow up 100 chariots. But in that day, that was the weapon. It was a formidable military weapon. And it was used primarily for taking flat terrain. Now, the Israelites were still in Egypt proper when they camped at uh, Pehaharath. And they seemed like... Easy prey, easy pickings for the chariot-based army. Now, let's look at the detail here. Verse 7 says they took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. A normal chariot team had two men in it. The first one was a driver and a shield bearer. He did both of those things. And his job was to drive and to protect the second man who was a bowman or a spearman. The chosen chariots also carried a third man, an officer. He commanded not only his chariot, but a group of other chariots as well. The chariots in the Egyptian army during this time period were organized into platoons of 10, squads of 50, and battalions of 250 chariots. So, if we do our math correctly here, if the 600 chosen commanding chariots is speaking at the very least of a platoon commander of 10, then these 600 chosen chariots are commanding 6,000 chariots, which is at least 12,000 men plus all the commanders. Now, this is really key for us because this wasn't just a token force sent out or one little contingent. Verse 7 says it was all the other chariots of Egypt, everything. And by the way, every chariot also had a large group of foot soldiers, chariot runners that accompanied them. The chariot battalion very rarely ran at full speed, so the foot soldiers were able to keep up. But the Israelites still outnumbered the the Egyptians, but the sight and the sound of thousands of Egyptian chariots would have been terrifying, and here's a reason why. The Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. They understood Egyptian military tactics. Let me tell you what they would do. The chariot platoons would approach the enemy and they would do it in angled lines. Remember I told you that they had platoons of 10. And so every platoon of 10 would go forward in these angled lines together. And the first archer in these diagonal lines would fire arrows at the front of the enemy. And they could fire up to a dozen arrows in their first pass. They were very quick. They continued firing and these angled lines would then begin, it was like a choreographed move, begin to circle around until every platoon formed a circle of 10 chariots. And so what you had going forward is these, these circles of charioteers and as the front of the circle reached the enemy, they would fire a barrage of arrows. That's just one group of 10, two groups of 10. This is... 6,000 of them doing this. The enemy lines would be broken, they would be chaotic, and the, the infantry at that point would attack. Now, the Egyptian archers were incredibly trained men. These aren't guys who just took a little toy bow out of their backyard and decided to try it out. Archaeology has discovered, uh, uncovered paintings of training facilities where these men would train for years. By this time in Egypt's history, they used highly prized and sophisticated composite bows. They were made from wood and animal bone, horn, leather, and a couple of other materials. And a bowman's bow was so valuable to him that they actually made cases for them to go in. The bow would be over six feet long, and it was a composite multi-bend design, and it could shoot, a, a good archer could shoot accurately 250 yards. And that's when he's trying to hit something in a small area. If you're just getting a sheer fusillade of arrows going in a big barrage, you could launch it over a quarter of a mile away and hit targets. In other words, the Israelites were doomed. They could be wiped out before a single Egyptian soldier ever got within 100 yards of them. And so the the people of Israel, verse 8 says, they had marched out defiantly, literally boldly. For a moment, they had a spirit of the favor of God that they were uh, being upheld because of the plagues and the fear that God had placed in the hearts of the Egyptians right after the first Passover. But now the contrast, the tables have been turned. 
Look at the Israelite army. They're traveling on foot with wives and children and possessions and livestock. I mean, a soldier, had he had a spear in one hand and a baby in the other and dragging a wife and children and, and more livestock around. He can't fight. The Egyptian army, on the other hand, professional military forces moving much faster with its horse-drawn chariots and unencumbered foot soldiers. And now Israel is pinned against the Red Sea. Israel had been in Egypt 400 years. They knew the tactics and they knew they didn't have a chance. Look at verse 10. What happens to them? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. No more courage. Fear overwhelms them. The sight of Egypt's chariots gave Israel sudden amnesia about what the Lord had done on their behalf. And it says that Israel cried out to the Lord. And by the way, they had a sudden reinvention of the facts of the case too. There's no indication in scripture that Israel ever said, we don't want to go, we would rather serve Egypt. They were a little hesitant, but they were only too glad to accept their freedom from slavery. But now they have this revisionist version of recent history. And they tell Moses, we said this was a bad idea. We told you so. In verse 11, they get sarcastic. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? What's Egypt famous for? I mean, it's made up of graves and tombs. And when you think of Egypt, what are the two things you think of? Pyramids and mummies. I mean, it's all about dead stuff. And the great pyramid of Giza was, had been there for a thousand years before Israel was even there. From a purely hand, human standpoint, Israel was doomed. Pharaoh was so certain of his victory that he brought all his buds. He brought all his friends, his entourage, to watch him get glory over the God of Israel. But through Moses... God assured Israel of his powerful protection, protection that would give all glory to God and take all glory away from Pharaoh. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. What a contrast between what the Lord would do and what the people were to do. What was the Lord to do? He will give salvation, meaning he'll physically rescue them. It's a work that he'll do alone. The Lord will fight. It's a word that means to do battle or to make war. What was Israel's job? Watch. That's it. Moses says, you'll never see them again after today. By the way, this was a, a monumentally fine hour for Moses' leadership because when he gave that speech, he didn't even know the plan yet. It's like he said, look, God's going to come through for us. God, what are you going to do? Because, and he's going to be great. He's going to fight for us. Come on, give me the plan. Well, he does. He does give him the plan. God will get glory because it's his perfect plan. He's going to give powerful protection. How do you defeat Pharaoh's army? What's the plan? Well, just mop him up, of course. The next feature of God's glory we might call his panoramic presentation. His panoramic presentation. You know what panoramic means? You ever take a picture like that on your phone where you do that little rotate thing and you see everything? It's an all-encompassing scene. This isn't God just doing a miracle that a small crowd can look at. It's a miracle literally that encompasses the entire sight line of the horizon. It's big enough that two armies and an entire nation can see and experience God will display a panoramic presentation of his glory. Now Moses gets the plan. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
Now, even if the Israelites hadn't been settled into camp, they couldn't outrun the Egyptians. There's no place to run. And obviously, you can't just walk into the sea. I don't think that occurred to them. But that was God's plan all along. The thing that nobody thought of was what God was going to do. And he would do two things at once. He would affect the rescue of Israel and the decimation of the Egyptian army all at the same time. And this is important because Israel had business to conduct in Canaan later on. And they wouldn't ever have to look over their shoulder for the Egyptian army. Why? Because there wouldn't be one. Now, by the way, verse 15 can be a little confusing. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? This isn't Moses personally crying out in doubt, but he's the representative of the people. And so God is speaking to them through him. This isn't lack of faith on Moses' part. And he tells them to go forward. It means to break camp. It means to get ready to move. And it would take the rest of that day and all evening. Verse 16 says, the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, not muddy ground, not even damp ground, but dry ground. In fact, ground so dry that experienced Egyptian charioteer officers would be willing to take their men into this ground. But even so, chariots and water, they don't mix. So why would they bother pursuing them? If this is going to be a pursuit, why would they bother pursuing once God does this miracle? Well, the first reason, verse 17, God inclined their hearts to do so, that they're going to do it because he makes them do it. But think about their situation from the vantage point of an Egyptian officer. Israelites with children and livestock and babies on their backs, they're on foot and they're going in this dry ground, this dry path through the sea, Imagine if the charioteers decided not to pursue and go back to Pharaoh and, and say, honest, they walked right through the sea. I mean, they just did, and we, we couldn't go. They would all die. So they had to go. They had to chase him. God had already determined to get glory over Egypt, so they were doomed. Now, just God had just told Moses to tell Israel to break camp and to get ready to move, there's an army ready to attack and now the action starts heating up and two things are gonna happen at once. We can't write two things at once so we do them one at a time. Now the panoramic presentation of the glory of God just begins and it is showtime. Verse 19, the first thing that happens. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So what's happening here? The first thing that's happening. The angel of the Lord, the pillar of the cloud, this is the visible manifestation of the glory of God. He had led them, moved them to this protective position, and now he's between them and the Egyptian army. So there is Israel, the Egyptian army, and the pillar of cloud between them. Now, the last phrase in verse 20 is somewhat obscure in Hebrew. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. This is a translation challenge, but we can kind of take apart the basic elements to understand what's happening. First of all, we know the cloud of the Lord came between Egypt and Israel. Secondly, we know the cloud had darkness and it had light. And we know that the darkness didn't come near the light all night long. And so really the only conclusion we can draw from those three facts that we get from the text is that the cloud not only separated the Egyptians from the Israelites, but it cast the Egyptians into a blackness of night and it lit up the Israelite camp like a stadium. Why would he do that? So that they could get ready to go and to give them courage. So that's happening. At the same time, something else is happening right together Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The same staff by which Moses had inflicted plagues on Egypt was now in his outstretched hand. Verse 16 told us this, the Lord uses his own forces of a massive wind to divide the waters. Now, We've all seen movies or artist renditions or drawings or, or whatnot of this crossing. And you see the waters piled up 
On either side is the Israelites march in a long line between these, these waters. There's many renditions. Every time, though, it always looks like the waters are just kind of a few yards apart as Israel trudges through. And I think, unfortunately, that's had an impact on our theology sometimes. For generations, people have tried to explain away this miracle or, or diminish it. Uh, people will say that Israel wasn't actually at the Red Sea. Some of your Bibles will even have a note that says that it's actually the Sea of Reeds, like a marsh or a swamp. But that's based on faulty language assumptions. That's a wrong translation. It is the Red Sea. Or others will say Israel must have been going through some sort of lake or bog or swamp or at the very, very most, a really shallow part right on the tip of the Red Sea. What is this an attempt to do? It's to try to downplay the panoramic presentation and the scale of this miracle. It had to be someplace either in one of two places. It had to be either at the Gulf of Suez the Gulf of Suez is the northwestern extension of the Red Sea. It's 195 miles long, average depth 131 feet, and between 12 and 27 miles wide. The only other option is the other arm of the Red Sea called the Gulf of Aqaba. It's 100 miles long, 115, I'm sorry, 15 miles wide, and over a mile deep in some places. Both of those... In the Old Testament, both of those extensions of the Red Sea, they are in the Old Testament referred to as the Red Sea. Never, not one time in the Old Testament does the phrase Red Sea refer to a bog or a lake or a marsh, not once. And now there's been some really remarkable scholarship to show that the Gulf of Aqaba on, on the eastern side was not possible. And so we're left with one option, that is the Gulf of Suez, the western arm right on the border of Egypt, right where scripture puts them. Now, if the Israelites were right near the northern tip of this, this gulf, Egypt wouldn't have tried to go after them. They would have just gone around. That would have been easy for them to do. And the entire northern section of that gulf of the western coastline, it's made up of rocky, craggy mountains and cliffs. There's no way two to three million people can camp there. It's, it's a horrible place. There's only a few points up and down that western coast of the gulf that really could be a place where Israel could camp. And every one of those places, if you go in the water, the water gets deep and it goes fast and it goes down. Now, why does this matter? Who cares? Who cares about geography? It matters because God told them to camp at the most impossible place possible. There's no human way out of this. It's been calculated that a 50-foot wide rank of people would make a line 200 miles long, so the path through the Red Sea had to be fairly wide. Now, why does it have to be wide? Well, they crossed the sea or they finished the crossing during the morning watch. Verse 27 tells us that they were all the way through before dawn. This wasn't a long time here. If they walked even a thousand people across the sea, the sea would have to be over a mile wide open and they would have extended back almost two miles. They're still not gonna make it. They had flocks, they had herds, they had possessions, they had children. So it would require an even larger space than that. It's not outside of the realm of likelihood that the, the water walls were two, three, or four miles apart. A massive, huge gulf made in the Red Sea. Even the narrowest gap in the Red Sea is 12 miles wide. And so to do that in four, five, six hours is all they had. You have to go two or three miles an hour. That's a pretty good clip even with animals, especially with animals. And so the gap had to be huge so that Israel could go across in one big group. So how big a wall of water are we talking about here? Here's a very broad estimate of the volume of water that would make up the walls on either side of them crossing. If you've ever been to Lake Tahoe, Lake Tahoe is the sixth largest lake in the United States. If you divide it in two and pile it up in two skinny walls, that's how much water was piled up. This was not just a couple of little waves that you could reach over and touch on either side. This was a massive, 
panoramic presentation. So what do we have here? What, what are we seeing all at the same time here? The pillar of cloud is keeping the Egyptians at bay and in the complete other darkness, massively high walls of water, mile or two apart, three million Israelites crossing at night with their side of the cloud lit up like a stadium. That's a panoramic presentation of the glory of God. It would have been overwhelming to look at. Israel reached the eastern bank. It seems very likely that they were either all the way across or most of the way across before God allowed Egypt to pursue them. And now God glorifies himself yet again. He's glorified himself in his perfect plan, his powerful protection, his panoramic presentation. The darkness of the cloud that was protecting Israel now turns deadly for the Egyptians as God glorifies himself in passionate punishment. Passionate punishment. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, five problems hit the Egyptians all at once. First, they unwisely pursued Israel into the midst of a sea. I mean, who drives a chariot between two walls of water? The army of a hard-hearted pharaoh, that's who. The second thing that happened is that God panicked their minds. It literally means confusion or chaos. They became like an army of green soldiers that have never seen combat before. And in verse 24, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. This is the very first time in this whole story that the pillar of fire is mentioned in this story. Now, what's going on here? If you've ever seen paintings or movies, you see the Egyptians kind of running around and there's a little water here and a little water there and there's a kind of a little cloud in front of them. The cloud looked down on them and now in fire, what happened? Both sides turned to fire and now the cloud literally comes on top of them. If you were with the Egyptians and looked up, what you would see is a ceiling, a sky of fire coming down on top of you. That's what they saw. The third thing that happened to them, they had trouble with their chariot wheels. They were clogging. Now that word doesn't speak of mud. Remember, no chariot officer would lead his whole squad into a bog. Clogging is a word that means to bind or to turn aside or to fall off. And it says, so that they drove heavily. Now it's interesting, Egypt was very proud of their chariots. They had engineered the best chariots in the world they were the lightest, they were the most maneuverable, they had a wheel designed with six spokes that was incredibly strong and incredibly stable. But their chariot wheels quit working. Some of them even came off. If you're a chariot driver and you're going along and your wheels come off and there you are, that's discouraging. That'll let the air out of your tank right there. That's only the first three things. The fourth thing that happened is they lost confidence. They lost confidence. Too little, too late, the theology of the Egyptians became precisely accurate. At the end of verse 25, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They lost confidence and rightly so. And last, as if your chariot's not working, going out of your mind with panic as if all of that's not enough, Psalm 77 gives us another detail that's happening to the Egyptians. Psalm 77, 17 and 18 says this, the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. So the chariots that still had wheels, now they were also contending with mud. Not mud from the water of the Red Sea, but mud from the sky that was coming down through the fire onto them and lightning and thunder. I mean, this is, this is unbelievable unless you're there. The wrath of God against the ungodly is not passive. It's not hesitant. It's not sort of some sort of last resort. It was God's plan to punish the wicked and he is passionate in his punishment. Listen to his passion. 
Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Uh, Through the Egyptians, it literally means he shook them off. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. In Revelation chapter 14, an angel is pictured as flying over the earth. Verse 6 says, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. What do you think the opening statement of this angel's gospel presentation will be? Do you think he's going to say, God is like a perfect gentleman waiting for you to respond to him? Is he going to say, Jesus wants to be your new friend? And that's the gospel. Listen to the gospel presentation of an angel at the end of time. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's the gospel presentation given at the hands of the judgment of God. By the way, how did God get glory over Pharaoh? How did he do it? The case for an early exodus, 1446 BC, this has been really thoroughly established from scripture itself and it's supported by external evidence as well. Any other date, evidence for it has really evaporated. And this means we know exactly who the Pharaoh of the exodus was. He was a man by the name of Amenhotep II and he was 26 years old when he faced Moses who was 80 at the time. How did God get glory over Amenhotep who would dare attack his people? You ready for this? How did God get glory over him? God let him live. He let him live. If you look closely at all the texts on the defeat of Pharaoh, Exodus 14, Psalm 136, they never explicitly say that Pharaoh himself died. Remember, he was some distance behind. He was watching with his entourage, with his people, with his groupies. The mummified remains of Amenhotep were discovered and positively identified in 1898. He didn't die in the Red Sea. God let him live. God let him live to see God win. He let him live for 30 more years to live every day with the humiliation of that other defeat. We know some things about Amenhotep II. We know that he had three sons. His third son ruled immediately after him. His name was Thutmose. His second son, from the time he was a young adult, became a priest in one of the Egyptian cults and served in that capacity until his death. There's an oldest son, an elder son. The likeness of him was found in tomb number 64 in the city of Thebes. And he's pictured only as a little boy sitting on the lap of his royal teacher, his personal tutor. The oldest son of Amenhotep II was slain by God in the 10th plague and buried as a child. We know something else about Amenhotep. We know from four different archeological sites that in November of 1446, just a few months after the exodus of Israel, Amenhotep did something that you never do. He made a wintertime raid to the areas of Asia. He took a very small force and we know from four different areas that he brought back precisely 101,128 slaves, more than 1,000 new chariots, and 13,500 new weapons. Why did he go do this in the middle of winter? Amenhotep had to go shopping for new slaves and a new army because he lost all of those. We know something else about Amenhotep. Previously, he was, and if you ask Egyptologists even, ask them who was the cruelest of pharaohs, they would say, generally speaking, Amenhotep. He went farther away from Egypt, conquering than any other pharaoh ever had. His foreign policy was a policy of aggression and intimidation to all of his surrounding nations. You know what happened in 1447? I'm sorry, 1445, a year later? Suddenly, he had a new foreign policy. He sent messages to all the nations around him, peace and brotherhood. Hey, let's get together and let's just have a drink and let's hang out. Why do you do that? Because when you don't have an army, you can't be aggressive anymore. He decided to give the olive leaf of peace because he didn't have an army. 
And he lived the rest of his life knowing that the God of Israel had gotten glory over him. He would live 30 more years until God would face him and God would get ultimate glory over him face to face. God is glorified in his passionate punishment of the wicked. Well, finally, God's glory is featured in his personal preference. His personal preference. The tone of this breathtaking story suddenly becomes somber. It becomes humbling. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Verse 29 is just a summary. It's a reminder of the key components. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being the wall to them on their right hand and on their left. But if you look carefully, these three verses absolutely scream a contrast. The contrast between Israel and Egypt. Israel is safe on the eastern side of the Red Sea. Egypt her dead are washing up on the seashore. And what happened as a result? Israel feared Yahweh and they believed in him. Why Israel? Why isn't it Egypt that lived and Israel that died? Why them? Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, so God chose Israel because of his love and because of his promise to Israel's forefathers, starting with Abraham. That doesn't answer my question. Why Abraham? Maybe we can get some insight into God's reasoning when we go back to the very first interaction with God and Abraham. It's found in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So why did God choose Abraham? All we get from the text is one reason, because God wanted to. That's the only reason we get Okay, God chose Israel because he decided to love her and because he'd made this promise to Abraham. The reason God chose Abraham was because God wanted to choose Abraham. But what about this whole being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years thing? What was that about? Why did that have to happen? Why not just avoid the whole thing? Why not have Abraham miraculously have triplets or quintuplets, sons, and then suddenly make a nation happen in a couple of years? In Genesis 15, when God was confirming and ratifying his covenant with Abram, the Lord gave him a message. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This is phenomenal. This is before Abram had a son named Isaac, before he had a grandson named Jacob whose name would be changed to Israel, before Israel had 12 sons, before Joseph, one of those sons, rose from slavery to be the second ruler in all Egypt, before Joseph was reunited with his family and saved them from famine, all before Joseph brought them to Egypt to live where the family would grow into a nation and eventually be enslaved. The choice of Abram, the choice of his descendants as the chosen nation of Israel, the, the choice to have this nation incubated in slavery in Egypt, the choice to rescue them, the choice to bring judgment on Egypt, we have one reason and one reason only given. It is God's personal preference. It's what he wanted to do. What a contrast. Israel is standing on the shore. They're alive. They've carried off the riches of the possessions of the Egyptians. They're in awe of God's mercy and his grace. And Egypt is washing up dead on the shore. The objects of God's wrath. 
No wonder Psalm 65, 4 says, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. What does this do for us? It reminds me to be in awe of the unsearchable mind of God. Listen, God is independent. He's autonomous. He is self-determining. He's sovereign. He is completely uninfluenced by anybody. He does what he wants. I don't know about you, but it makes me think twice. It makes me want to heed Paul's reminder in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six to consider the calling of our salvation. Paul says, for not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. Now, why would he do that? Why does he choose the weak? Paul continues in verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, when you talk about the glory of God, it's disconcerting, it's nerve-wracking, it is dangerous, it's alarming, it's distressing. Can I put it this way? The glory of God is the most terrifying idea ever, if you happen to find yourself on the wrong side of it, on the wrong side of his glory, But we praise the Lord for those who have repented of their sin, those who have received Christ by faith for the forgiveness of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed an amazing prayer for you and for me. In his great high priestly prayer of John 17, he prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. What an amazing promise. It's the glory of God, his might, his strength, his worthiness that has to be the foundation. That's what enables us to do what the Apostle Paul said, to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And that enables us to join with the chorus of Revelation 5 that says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever." and ever, and could we say all together, amen. Every creature giving him glory. There's no other foundation for our steadfastness. The glory of God grabs a hold of us, and Jesus Christ himself says, the glory that I have, I will show you. What a promise. What a source of strength. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are deserving of absolutely nothing. The only thing we ought rightfully to have is your fury, your wrath, your righteous indignation against the countless times that we have offended your holiness. Even as children, we shook our fists at authority. We shook our fists at you. We disobeyed our parents. And as teenagers, we completely rebelled against you and we thought we knew everything and we laughed at sermons we heard in church and we sung the songs that speak of the gospel and we laughed inwardly in our hearts. We were rebels. We were the enemies of God. We should have been with Pharaoh and his armies. And yet in your grace, in your kindness, that dividing cloud of the glory of God has placed us on the side of light. And for that, Lord, we will happily and joyfully spend the rest of eternity giving you all blessing and honor and glory for they are due to your name. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.